Bienvenue mesdames et messieurs à le Bascour, le Bailey en anglais. Ceci est le podcast officiel de l'Académie française. Je suis votre hôte marocain, Yassine Masrot. Aujourd'hui, notre sujet est la question québécoise. Avec moi ce soir est Révolte des Koulaks, restant civilisé et obsidienne. Bienvenue, monsieur. Happy to be here. <rire> <rire> bonjour, bonjour. <rire> okay, so for those that didn't understand what the fuck I was talking about. Uh, hi, this is uh, The Bailey. Today's show is going to be The Question of Quebec. And uh, it's going to be, um, I guess, is it, it, I guess supposedly like a, a, a francophone edition, except for Kulak, who doesn't speak French. I am the representative of monolingual Anglo-Canadian rage. <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, we're not going to do the en entire episode in French. Uh, so hopefully no one stopped listening just because they heard that. Uh, but yeah, the topic is going to be uh, Quebec. Quebecian? How do you say that in English? Quebecer. 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 <laughs> Uh, Quebecer Quebec is the imperialist uh, tone. <laughs> Quebecer uh, independence. Uh, we're going to look at the history of Quebec uh, as it started as a French colony, how it uh, transformed under uh, British rule, and how the movement for a unique and discrete uh, identity within Quebec uh, still survives to this day and how much it affects uh, current politics. Uh, so again, joining us today, uh, we have Kulak Revolt. Hello. Hi, I'm Kulak. You can follow me at anarchonomicon.substack or at fromkulak on Twitter. Yeah, no one asked. <laughs> It doesn't matter who asks, you're going to know. <laughs> uh, and then we have uh, our resident uh, Frenchie, Let's Stay Civilized. Hello. Hi, I'm Siv. I'm the token Frenchie. Uh, you can probably find my OnlyFans and uh, that's about it. Cool. And then we have a, a bonafide Quebecois. Obsidian. Hello. Um, so you can find me uh, in uh, doing smoke signals in the general uh, Montreal area. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's get this. Let's get one thing straight. It's Montreal. <laughs> Montreal, the T is silent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Montreal. Uh, so let's start with you, uh, Obsidian. How about you give us an overview of... Uh, Quebec and its history. Right. So uh, Quebec starts out at a, as a, a network of trading posts across uh, North America. And um, uh, this is in stark contrast to New England, which is immediately from the start of settler colony. So let's say mid 1600s, uh, you have a few hundred Frenchmen uh, in North America, overwhelmingly men. And uh, New England, by this point, uh, tens of thousands of people. So uh, New France will, will never catch up and always be a minority on the continent. Uh, just to add more context, uh, you have the colonial enterprises of uh, France and England. Uh, England's uh, holdings, as is obvious, mostly is in the eastern seaboard of what is present-day United States. Uh, the French uh, holdings is ostensibly much, much larger, uh, starting from the Quebec region of France. Uh, I'm sorry. Starting from the <laughs> Quebec, the, uh, the Quebec uh, region of uh, present-day Canada, all, going all the way down to modern-day Louisiana and covering basically any everything, the entire United States Midwest, uh, including parts of uh, Ontario, present-day Ontario. So it was it was much much larger, but uh, as you were saying, right. And so uh, the, the 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 New French are far too uh, small a number to hold that much territory. So when the Iroquois, uh, New England's uh, native allies, 
start butchering uh, neighboring tribes, uh, the Frenchmen uh, can't do much about it. So the import, they, they, they turn to settler colonial, colonialism in order to try to hold this territory. So as the, the myth goes that the king handpicked the most beautiful prostitutes in France and sent them across to Mary, the so-called daughters of the king, which would explain why to this day French Canadian women are smoking hot. Uh, in reality, these were probably ordinary co- commoner young women uh, recruited from uh, across France. A uh, couple petty nobles, couple of uh, women from landed families, but you know, the the, the riffraff mostly. Uh, but the but the goal with the the daughters of the king was to uh, encourage the flagling po- colonial population because that was becoming essentially like a military liability because they couldn't defend the holdings. Exactly. And so, uh, nevertheless, you know, time marches on. Uh, war pits France against uh, Great Britain. In the Seven Years' War, uh, the two kingdoms' colonies duke it out. And uh, uh, New France is outnumbered 15 to 1, so it gets brutally owned. So, following conquests, uh, Great Britain takes measure to assimilate the French. The um, the French Canadians living in the maritime territories, the so-called Acadians, are taken and forcibly expelled to the 13 colonies. Uh, half of them won't make it. They'll just die in route. Uh, so this was essentially a, a genocide. It was fairly effective. Today, the, the majority of people in the maritime provinces only speak English. Uh, and the deported Acadians uh, have integrated in Louisiana as the Cajuns. So the Seven Years' War took place across the world. Uh, it was duked out between... France and Britain and Spain was involved as well, but it had different theaters. The portion that is relevant is, I think, referred to in the United States as the French and Indian War. Uh, this is also the curious, there are some historian theories that uh, say that George Washington was responsible for instigating the Seven Years' War. So George Washington was a lieutenant colonel uh, in uh, the Virginia Regiment in um, on the side of uh, uh, Great Britain. And he confronted the, a French force and ambushed them. And there's a theory that he was the one responsible for starting the Seven Years' War, which spiraled out of control into this this global massive conflict. Uh, and potentially that's where he engendered maybe some resentment, uh, because then he was ignored by uh, British uh, military for promotions. So that's that's just like a minor like piece of trivia. So the the genesis of of the U.S. would connect with uh, with this, this the the Seven Years' War. Yes, potentially. What's interesting about that is that I only heard about that like reading from American history. In our history classes, we basically, I think, almost don't speak about that war. Because you got owned. Well, is it because you have a different name for it? La Guerre de Sept Ans or whatever, but... Uh... Yeah, but the but when you're talking about the North American theater of La Guerre de Sept Ans, uh, what does that refer I, to? I promise you it's not the French and Indian War. <laughs> we, we usually <laughs> call it the, the Seven Years' War. One of the interesting things about the Seven Years' War is that it was not viewed as at all decisive that actually conquering Quebec and like winning the Battle of Quebec would result in in French Canada becoming a British possession forever. It was widely assumed that it would be negotiated out between the British and the French and the French would get Quebec back, but during the negotiations, France traded Quebec in exchange for sugar coal colonies and apparently when the treaty was signed there was rejoicing in the streets of paris that the british had traded sugar for snow <laughs> right i believe that guadeloupe uh the the, the island nation of guadeloupe which was a, a sugar colony uh was uh, traded for quebec to to british in as a concession 
Great Britain uh, held on to Quebec. Yes, exactly. Did the, did the French have anything left after that in what is now present-day Canada? So I, th- I believe they held Saint-Pierre-et-Miquelon, which is a, a tiny uh, archipelago in the St. Lawrence Bassin. Yeah, and nowadays the only point of consequence to this holding is, is fishing disputes, right? Yep. Yeah, that's the use French France has made of its islands. It, entirely worthless rocks that secure vast stretches of fishing ocean. Yeah, so the secession of land happened... What year was this? At the end of the Seven-Year War. 1763, exactly. And then? Uh, right, so uh, the Crown took substantial measures to uh, assimilate the Francophones and encourage uh, British immigration. So they would settle uh, British colonists on confiscated lands, establish English schools and institutions. Uh, Catholics were uh, legally forbidden from government offices. And uh, Francophones were de facto excluded from the ownership class, so from commerce from management, uh, from industrial ownership. Uh, the Catholic Church fought back with the revenge of the cradles. Uh, families were encouraged to have as many children as possible. It was viewed as a very serious sin to prevent family, to, to fail, to, as a family, to fail to be constantly producing kids. The way the, that Great Britain organized the Canadian territory was to split it into what, is, what was known as Lower and Upper Canada. And this is... Uh, in reference to the St. Lawrence River, meaning it's the same way that people talk about lower and upper uh, Egypt when they're talking about in reference to the Nile. So the closer you are to the ocean, the opening, the further east you are, that was lower Canada. And that was much more French uh, than upper Canada, which was uh, much more dominated by um, uh, British settlers. Right. Right. So, so upper Canada would correspond to the area around uh, Ottawa uh, through Toronto, uh, lower Canada would be uh, like Montreal, Quebec City, uh, in the the region. And so, in the in the 1800s, you had uh, what the English called uh, the Lower Canada Revolt, but which we Quebecois call the Revolt of the Patriots. Uh, and uh, basically, we got we got we got owned. Like it was an attempt at a civil war that, <laughs> that didn't go so far. About a uh, hundred dead on each side. There there are uh, cannonball holes in uh, the wall of a church near where I grew up. Uh, from that uh, from that time, uh, why did you get owned? Because um, we were poor and disorganized and didn't have a uh, formal military. Notably, there was also the Upper Canada Revolt that had happened around the same time, which was um, vaguely Republican leaning um, Canadians centered around Toronto who revolted and um, tried to secure a Republic of Upper Canada at the time, as opposed to being governed by the British monarchy. There were also a few attempts at um, guerrilla actions to to either annex Canada into the U.S. or um, establish a Republic of Canada with an exiled Canadian as the presumed president of this future republic. The history of revolts against the crown in Canada are quite extensive. The 1837 Upper Canada Revolt. The revolt was led by William Mackenzie, who was a a very prominent um prominent newspaper man um you'd compare him to like Rush Limbaugh or like um maybe Ezra Levant would be the Canadian example today but he wrote extensively against what in Ontario is called the family compact the um the established families who thought of themselves as the nobility of Canada and were tasked with the enforcement of of imperial order and colonial order and if i recall the story right he had he had taken several members members of the local elite hostage, and one of them 
and I'm set to disarm them when one of the members of the elite said, well, the, I'm kind of offended at this. Won't you just accept my word that I won't resist you? And he didn't want to have a duel down the line. So he said, okay, I accept your word as a gentleman. At which, and then the second William McKenzie's back was turned, this guy drew the pistol on him and t- took William McKenzie prisoner. And that was the end of the revolt that he broke his word as the gentleman. And that's how the Canadian elites sustain themselves by breaking their word of honor, which <laughs> is an ongoing trend to anyone who follows Canadian politics. The big thing was that the English Canadians in Ontario were, were chafing under the crown and it's, it's appointed rulers at this time as well. Um, it was widely perceived that the Canadian elites were corrupt in Quebec, there was the Chateau Clique, which was the equivalent of the family compact in Ontario. But I'd characterize this pattern of corrupt elites ruling by dividing Canadians against each other and exploiting imperial precedent as ongoing to the present day. Right. And, and the Chateau Clique, like, uh, one, one might get the impression that uh, those were uh, French Canadian elites uh, from the name, but they weren't really, right? They were uh, British commercial elites. Well, the way it gets characterized, depending on who you talk to, either the Chateau Clique or the Family Compact are a historical phenomenon or they're an ongoing phenomenon. So, <laughs> so in Ontario, it's very common to talk about the Family Compact as something that's still ongoing and and you can still name the families and, oh, yep, they're still rich and, oh, yes, they're still involved in politics and, oh, yes, it's very hard to do anything without connection to them so the characterization of the chateau clique from the ontario perspective is oh yeah at one point they were forced to intermarry with and include a bunch of um a bunch of the uprising french elite so the people who became the political elite of the quebecois but really if you look at the genealogies like like the trudeaus are intermarried with with the old um, Chateau Clique, if you look at the people who become department heads, like they share the genealogy of, oh yeah, they're Chateau Clique, and oh yeah, they had one uncle who was was associated with Quebecois independence at one point, and they intermarried. Or, oh yeah, one of their friends is a Barassa who's basically a member of this family. So is this like Q for uh, Eastern Canada? <laughs> No, no, because it's not it's not conspiracy oriented. It's corruption ethnographic oriented. It's it's not alleging that uh, these guys have any overlapping conspiracy. It's that oh yeah, every every time the elite does something, they they reinforce this group of people's positions. So, for example, um, the bilingual laws that require that in order to hold a position, certain position within. Canadian government, you must be officially bilingual. Pretty much the entire old family compact and Chateau Clique, new and old, all became bilingual and invested heavily in that or were bilingual to begin with. So I, they I, became... I agree that Anglophones having to being forced to learn French is a, is a very, very problematic thing. <laughs> so the when you say the Chateau Clique and what was it the family compact, th- those are just those are names for the elites. Uh, within Lower and Upper Canada, right? Uh, yes, the Family Compact in, Ont- uh, in Upper C- 
Canada, currently Ontario, and the Chateau Clique in Quebec, current or Lower Canada, back in the day. Yeah, and Obsidian. Um, I think this goes into one of the uh, one of the differences in how Canada was developed, uh, distinct from how the United States was uh, developed, where it was. I, th- I think it was more feudal, right? Yes, uh, we're talking about a semi-feudal uh, society with the the seigneur, the lords. Uh, having um, uh, basically uh, tenants on their lands, and so uh, uh, French Canada was very rural and not in the you know the, 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 there were few uh, landed uh, you know s- fuck what's the name in English uh, like a landed pe- landed peasant freeman yeoman yeah okay okay, okay. so, so there, there were there were relatively few yeomen uh so men who had uh who exploited their own lands uh so how how is the history of new france and quebec uh taught within france basically it's not <laughs> <laughs> like is it because that, it's too embarrassing i have no idea i mean basically a bunch of that is stuff i read either reading up on wikipedia or talking to people from canada but it all that stuff plays very little of a role in france uh and honestly we're always a bit baffled maybe when interacting with Quebecois because there's a bunch of stuff that they will really feel strongly about and about the French-speaking identity and we're like even more French but kind of awkwardly don't really know how to say oh yeah we never heard about all that the thing is that you aren't (laughs) surrounded on all sides by one culture uh, that vastly outnumbers you I think like as the seat of of the, the the castle of the French community. I think France has has very little to worry about, and so you guys can, you know, can take all sorts of um, all sorts of liberties. Yeah, you with- can kick off your slippers and lay back on your chaise long. Definitely, definitely. There's a bunch of stuff. Um, that's in the, in fact that's uh, the case. There's a case for Canada. There's also the case for um, Belgium, where like the French language is very political, and what gets taught in school is super political, and everybody feels strongly about that, and you could get into huge arguments, and people would get very angry. So Belgium is a bit like that, and Canada is a bit like that, and us French people are a bit baffled when we visit those countries because oh well, somebody speaks French or not, and that's like not well, very the, the important. Way, the way I see it is that uh, language is a proxy for culture. If you lose if you lose your language, if your kids uh, don't speak the language your parents spoke, then your kids don't have access to your grandparents' culture. And equally important is that uh, they are at the mercy of. Uh, the, the whichever culture or the, the the culture associated with the language that supplanted them. Sure, sure. Uh, like on the intellectual level, I I agree. But it's when I compare like the way sort of a naive French or like when I was growing up would feel about those things is it's very distant or abstract. But then I actually meet people who feel super strongly about this. Well, it's like um, it's like Northern Ireland and England. No one in England actually cares that much about um, James the second versus um king william or or no one cares really that much about cromwell and americans don't even know who who these guys were but in northern ireland if you say something about cromwell or king willie or william of orange them's fighting's words yeah i think there's a good analogy to make between like the um, the loyalists in northern ireland that how they feel really uh vis-a-vis to uh, england and the Quebecois versus French, except it's a bit, it's like it's on the other end of the world and it's not even in the same union. So we French don't even really realize or care or know about what's going on over there in that distant place that we really haven't heard about for like centuries. That province. 
distance, yeah, we maybe have heard about that. And I mean, uh, okay, I may be exaggerating a little bit because we know about like Celine Dion <laughs> <laughs> and other of the like, but uh, maybe also it's 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 also there's a bit of a divergence between the the two countries or the two uh, places and cultures. And that, I mean, one aspect is of course the whole feeling is very different about culture, but also the whole symbology in that the fleur de lis that is all over Quebec is for us a symbol of royalty and of the past and the oppressive past and something that we're glad to be rid of. Right. There are actually people who, uh, uh, like some some anarchists were against the flag of Quebec because, so the, the flag of Quebec is a white cross on a blue field with four fleur de, fleur de lis. And the cross represents the clergy and the, the fleur de lis represents the king. And so uh, anarchists aren't a fan. In, in like recent past couple of histories, France, sort of like in mainstream culture, it's kind of the bad guys are going to be the king whose symbol is the fleur de lis and the Catholic church. Uh, and they're like the enemies of freedom or like the old order. And basically France, modern France built itself getting rid of those shackles. So of course, we're going to feel strange relating to Quebec who is raising those two as important national symbols. I, that that happened. Uh, so the, the 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 flag was actually adopted during the the Great Darkness, which was the age just before uh, Quebec kind of came into its own as um, as a, a you know modern uh, free Western society. And just a step back before, so you know, uh, France ceded the holdings of all, almost all of Canada except for like a tiny island. What was Quebec like throughout the 19th century in comparison to? Uh, what would be known as Upper Canada, which was more Toronto and, and Ottawa. It was much poorer. The, the francophones consisted mostly of uh, working class people in the, in the metropolis in Montreal and tenant farmers in the countryside. So that's the profile of the typical Quebecois. And this is where we get into the Age of Darkness. Uh, what year was that? So uh, that went from 1929 through 1959, uh, coinciding with the, the ring of Maurice Duplessis, a uh, uh, conservative strongman. And why was it referred to as the Age of Darkness? Uh, so this was at the at an era when uh, radio and TV were beginning to emerge. So we were starting to see uh, what what life was like outside of Quebec. But at the at the same time, uh, we had uh, we had this this government that uh, was very uh, motivated to keep uh, the existing structures in place. So uh, the, the the Catholic Church was very involved in state matters. Like uh, the, the the church would censor books uh, that 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 would be made uh, basically unfit to print or to sell. So what I'm noticing is that there's some overlap. The uh, Catholicism would serve as a proxy for French identity, right? Yes, absolutely. And so. Uh, as a way to, I guess, format further identity, you'd have the, there'd be like two significant pylons. It would be the Catholicism as well as the French language, right? Yes. That, and we're, and we're talking would... about a time when like, uh, for most people, the, the like the idea of a, of a, of a Quebecois culture, the idea of Catholicism and the idea of the French language were not clearly differentiated. They were like, they were one. Right. And so that's that tends to be to serve as the foundation for a distinct identity, meaning distinct from the rest of Canada. It was and it remains part of the Commonwealth of Nations, meaning uh, Queen Elizabeth is the head of state, at least on paper. Exactly. And so, so you have so you have this um, this this country where people or this province where people 
are uh, living as uh, third world peasants. Uh, my grandfather uh, shat in an outhouse and bathed twice per winter. Uh, most people uh, didn't have more than a sixth grade education from a religious school. Uh, the most Quebecois were subsistence farmers or worked in backbreaking industrial jobs. It was said that we were born for a small loaf of bread, meaning that we couldn't aspire for more. And uh, the Quebecois elite, such as it was, consisted entirely of, of petty bourgeois like uh, doctors and priests and notaries. Uh, so nothing like the Anglophone commercial industrial elite in either uh, by that time, uh, I, th- I think by that time it was Ontario or uh, even the, the Anglophone elites in Montreal. Uh, so is this, uh, do you think this is like a holdover of the pseudo-feudal society that uh, preceded it? I don't have a strong opinion on the matter, but uh, I can tell you what the, the, the separatist, um, the, the, the independentist uh, claim as to these ideas was, which was that uh, the British, uh, the, 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 well, the, the Canadian elite kept uh, Quebec impoverished on purpose in order to have uh, an endless source of cheap labor. That's an, that's an interesting almost like marxist uh, critique it is it is a marxist critique okay yeah so quebec was largely kind of like a backwards province in a way uh it was it wasn't as uh, wealthy as the rest of canada it was fair to say that it was uh kind of neglected by the rest right, of the country right. and, and whatever wealth that was uh was largely held by uh, anglophone elites right so uh when when you're describing the age of darkness was that an effort to change that by Duplice? Uh, so du- Duplessis was um, it was a conservative uh, traditionalist. So so there was not an attempt to to, to change that around. Like it was, uh, it, I I believe at that point it was seen as the the the, the Quebecois people's fate to be uh, to, to be this you know uh, very salt of the earth, very um, you know. Like poor, poor in this life, uh, rich in the next, type thing. Uh, right. So that's what I find. That's one thing I find interesting about the development of uh, Quebecois identity is that uh, the first period, the Age of Darkness, as, as you refer to it, it's, it's it's we actually call it the Great Darkness, the La Grande Noirceur. La Grande Noirceur. Yeah. Noirceur. Yeah. You got noirceur. this. <laughs> La Grande Noirceur. Yeah, I'll I'll edit it to make it sound better. Uh, but that that's that that was. Um, potentially, um, I guess, uh, encouraged or instigated by a desire to have a more distinct identity because that's otherwise Catholicism would not serve as the focus of it, right? So, so I, I think that Catholicism served as a social organizing principle that, uh, that, that, that was load-bearing for, for, for Quebec communities. And so like, there, was no, there wasn't a conception of what life would be without it. Without Catholicism, there was no conception of what life would be without Catholicism. But but doesn't that but doesn't the move towards Catholicism uh, help engender a more distinct identity for Quebec? Right. So there, there's no move to Catholicism. This is a Catholic society from the 1500s. Right. But um, I guess what I'm asking is, uh, doesn't the fact that Catholicism, the the fact that the Catholic Church was such an influential uh, institution, and the fact that it was almost inseparable from the identity from the francophone identity does that is that was that in its own way a way to to help carry the the saint quebecois identity i think it was a way to to because like the distinct quebecois identity 
uh, in, in a way was was enforced from on high, right? Like you have to recall that uh, uh, the most office jobs w- weren't open to uh, francophone unilingual people, so you had to either you know convert or uh, stay out, and so. This this distinct there, 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 I don't think even by that point the idea of of um, like uh, an equal coexistence was on the table, and so so I think Catholicism was uh, a means of defense against that, like a, a, a guiding light in this in this uh, this struggle. Did you say something about how uh, when the British took over they they didn't allow people that were Catholic to serve? In government or something to that effect. Exactly. Yes, I did say that. the The term is the Serment du Test, but uh, it didn't last through the two centuries after conquest. I think it lasted for about a hundred years. So it ended in 1828, 150 years after uh, its institution. Serment du Test was uh, an official oath that uh, required all civil servants within Lower and Upper Canada to not profess the religion of Rome, meaning you can't swear fealty to Rome. And that was a, a way to exclude Catholics. Yeah, it says basically you you can't uh, take orders from the Pope. Right. It was a you know it was a pretext, uh, but it was used to uh, to exclude Catholics from uh, having positions of power. So there there was uh, there was indeed a, a formal institutionalized policy of discriminating against uh, Catholics. So while there it ended in 1828, it's fair to say that there was probably some residual uh, discrimination that was less formal. Even today, in some anglophone discourse, you can see some uh, residual colonialism. The extent of um, kind of Anglo dominance during the Victorian period. Um, the most prominent um, monument in Montreal, like an old Montreal, right in front of City Hall, is is a massive pillar that memorializes Horatio Nelson's victory at Trafalgar over Napoleon. So think about that in the <laughs> in the most French city in North America, the most prominent monument is memorializing a Brit- British victory over the French that happened even after conquest. So how does that make you feel? Uh, we don't really feel very strongly about those things anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like cope to me. <laughs> <laughs> We have the age of what was it called? The age of darkness. The great, the great darkness. Yeah, the great darkness. What what changed? So this is this this is a period of about thirty years in which uh, so, some contradictions uh, are are mounting. Uh, so you know, pe- people uh, become aware of of how life is lived elsewhere in the world, uh, in North America, in uh, in the United States. Uh, elsewhere in Canada, and also some uh, some francophone elites are sending their kids to study to France in higher uh, higher education institutions, and they come back with this this very open perspective. Um, some also some Quebecois are coming back from uh, World War II, having seen France, having spoken to French people, and and just with with ideas about uh, what life could be like. Uh, and in particular, one of the uh, what I call the two main characters in the Quebec identity struggle, René Lévesque, was a uh, journalist in uh, World War II in France. He would uh, follow the front into Germany. Uh, the other main character comes in a little bit later. His name is Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and he will be uh, Prime Minister of Canada. And that's also the same time as a bunch of other people from all over the world were studying in France going back to their country and getting ideas about independence or whatever. 
and leading to revolts. Uh, for example, even uh, Deng Xiaoping from uh, China, I believe, had been in France around that time. And also all the independence leaders from pretty much all the French colonial empire at the time, or people that studied in France, heard about Marxism and things like that, and went back home and meant uh, various flavors of independence revolutions. Why, why was France such, uh, such a magnet for this type of uh, thinking? I don't know if French was a magnet. Maybe it was, but it's also the French colonial empire. I, I'm not sure why that happened more in the French empire than the British one, but I think it happened in the British one too, actually. Well, France had a revolutionary character to its, to all its nationalism. So there's this huge nationalist uptick and there's France is one of the great centers of socialism, the Paris Commune and various things. Um, uh, Ho Chi Minh, I believe, studied in Paris as well, was another one of those examples. Yeah, there was an epiphenomenon in the late 60s. Uh, I'm going I'm to maybe talk about that a bit more later, or we can cover it now. But uh, there was a Bader Meinhof gang uh, are active in Germany at the same time as the FLQ at the, like within short order of May 68 in France, which I'm sure Siv could tell us a bit more about. When we're talking about the the first half of the 20th century, you still had extensive colonial holdings by European powers. Um, the the French Union uh, colonial uh, provinces extended uh, up until Vietnam. I think a lot of people forget that Vietnam used to be held by France. Uh, and I, I'd say like, I don't know, a third of Africa was under French colonial rule. Uh, so it was, it was quite extensive uh, in terms of how far the arms reached out to. Uh, and it didn't change. And it, when it did change, like throughout the 50s and 60s, it changed rather dramatically. I'm not certain it's an entirely French phenomenon in that very similar things happened in the British Empire yes. where a bunch of ex-British colonies had leaders who had studied in Britain and then went back to their home countries and suddenly wanted independence. Yes, the, the same, exact same thing, almost like uh, the same thing happened with uh, the British Empire. Uh, I mean, India and Pakistan, uh, Pakistan wasn't even a country then, but India was, uh, was a British colony up until uh, shortly after uh, World War II. Uh, so this is a, a similar uh, dynamic. Quebec was just a bit of a weird situation in that they were French speakers who were not actually part of the French Empire, but still had the same pattern of learning about independent ideas. Yes, exactly. The Great Darkness, uh, that helped expose a lot of Quebecois to how the rest of the world was uh, operating. Uh, and this goes into the next episode of this saga. Go ahead. And so... Uh during the Duplessis, Maurice Duplessis, the conservative strongman's reign, uh, there were kind of initial uh, early attempts to to just uh, topple the Catholic order, but uh, these were these were uh, repressed by the by the state uh, and, and the church conjointly. And so, when Maurice Duplessis died in power, uh, 1959, shortly after uh, a, a liberal government was elected to replace him, and they ran under the slogan masters in our own home and this was uh when quebec ushered into the the, the quiet revolution Qu quiet because no heads rolled but it was a, a a sea of change in uh quebec society what kind what kind of changes took place so you, you mentioned that there was a, a, a specific party that got elected but then what happened what did they do what happened the catholic church was kicked out of government and education so whereas they did run all uh primary and secondary education up to this point. Uh, this was to become a state competence. Uh, education was nationalized. Uh, healthcare was nationalized. 
Lower education was made free at the point of use. Higher education uh, was meant to follow, but that never happened. Uh, electricity was nationalized. The government bought out Anglophone hydroelectric dam owners and built its own dams as well. Uh, there's a very good uh, video of René Lévesque, our uh, future uh, prime minister, who was then minister of natural resources, giving what was essentially a 30-minute math class explaining how nationalizing electricity was going to be profitable. So this was a, a very high level of, of uh, respect for the, the, uh, the audience or the electorate. I, 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 I kind of like that. So the changes that are reflected within the Quiet Revolution, 1960s Quebec, uh, they have a distinct socialist bent, right? Yeah, so the, the, the these are very progressive, very uh, social democrat uh, changes, right? Uh, very liberal changes. That, uh, but there, there was also um, something we, which we wouldn't recognize as liberal. There was some economic nationalism. Uh, multiple financial institutions were created to intervene in the economy and favor local businesses. Uh, so for example, we have a, a, a large institution managing uh, the province's public retirement funds uh, with a, a legislative, legislated bias towards investing the money in local businesses. And to this day, I think uh, that organization, the CP CDPQ, uh, plays a crucial part in the economy of Quebec. So does, does Quebec uh, tend to be the more leftist part of Canada? By miles. Yes, though we are often accused of being more racist. We'll, we'll get to that. But just speaking about the economic preferences, the, the preference for organizing uh, economic society, uh, the proclivity towards nationalism and having things run by the government, uh, that is, is that more of a Quebec flavor? Yes, I, th I think because uh, Anglo-Saxon ideas about uh, liberal economics haven't been as influential here in part because a lot of people just don't speak English. Right. So one, uh, I think I asked this before, but um, one thing I noticed about the Quiet Revolution is that it was explicitly anti-Catholic church, right? Yes. But, but it maintained, uh, it was able, I guess, to make a distinction between, uh, to bifurcate the uh, idea of Catholic identity away from the idea of Francophone identity or Quebecois uh, identity, right? Right. And th this was revolutionary. And to this day, like we, we still have some old people who are like, aren't happy that this happened. How I'm kind of, I'm curious, like how did this happen? How did the bifurcation uh, take place? Was it? Uh, frankly, I think it's just the influence of uh, seeing foreign cultures uh, on our screens and hearing them on the on the radio and reading them in books. That that, that was enough. Like before before the Quiet Revolution, there was no conscience of anything beyond the 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 the, the, the province. And in fact, probably most people didn't have a conscience of what was happening beyond their village or their neighborhood. In other words, I'd blame France. <laughs> <laughs> well, does this uh, say, does this track with uh, the secular approach uh, of France? I mean, that's uh, as he was saying. That's at the time that a bunch of people went to France to study, plus expositions to French media. I would expect that are that were much more secular. How did French secularize in the first place? Uh, that's. Um, I mean, there's a revolution, and sort of following the revolution. Uh, a lot of it, basically, during the 19th century, the right wing, the conservative wing, was royalist and Catholic. And a large part of the left was very much anti-royalist and therefore anti-Catholic. Uh, how much 
influence the Catholic Church had in France was a big political deal, but more during the 19th century. And uh, the basically, the French government centralized a lot and had a strong education policy. Like in every village, there was a teacher who was sort of the traditional opponent of the local uh, priest. Hell yeah. The central government very much pushed a more secular general culture. And that's like... The church was nice for church and all that, but definitely shouldn't be putting its nose into politics or education or science or anything that was the government's business. Right. So it only took us about 150 years to catch <laughs> up with you. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So it's a long, it's a long tradition of secularism uh, within France, but uh, in terms of how pronounced it was, that it kind of just got slowly louder over the years. I wouldn't say it's not that it got louder. It's more that basically in the like 18th and 19th century, the whole story of the struggle for freedom on this side of the Atlantic was very much a story of the struggle against basically the Catholic Church or against like old superstitions. Whereas the way I feel it's in the in the US mostly, it's very much religion is on the side of freedom. Yes. Uh, and I think Quebec is maybe a bit halfway between those two stories. Yes, Catholicism was a guiding light for a long time, but I think uh, there was there was an adjustment. I think uh, the the these uh, people, when exposed to more liberal cultures, felt that the Catholicism had too central a role in um, in their lives. And by the way, like t today, uh, no one under the age of fifty in Quebec is, is Catholic. It's it's like it, it's it's over. Interesting. So the Quiet Revolution had 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 wide-ranging effects on Quebec and on and... On, on the economics uh, of Quebec, but also on the the social aspects. Yes, and it established the the Quiet Revolution would be the a, a significant milestone in the the trajectory of the of Quebec. Right. I mean, that's kind of obvious, but but it, meaning <laughs> it it's had it had a it was a significant milestone in terms of how I guess more or less permanent the changes were. I mean, it was a big shift that has. Uh, entrenched itself in uh, modern-day Quebec, right? Right. The, the 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 model hasn't changed since, if that's what the question is. Yes. Uh, so, what uh, after the Quiet Revolution, uh, which was, you know, as you say, quiet, it wasn't as peaceful, right? Right. So, so uh, I want to uh, talk just a little bit about the the rising uh, kind of consciousness of national identity in the in the, the years leading to to what you're you're referring to D during the quiet revolution we had uh the right to speak french in the workplace uh that that we obtained uh we had uh charles de gaulle uh the, this beloved french general and world war ii hero the leader of the french free army during the nazi, nazi occupation of france uh, he visited Quebec and gave a historic speech in front of a massive crowd and concluded with Vive le Québec libre, which means long live to free Quebec. Uh, this caused a massive diplomatic incident uh, between uh, uh, Canada and France. Say, say more about that. Like, what was the response to uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle? By the way, I just want to know, like, how French of a name is de Gaulle? It's so sick. <laughs> as French as you can get. <laughs> so the... This uh, this this slogan "Vive le Québec libre" to this day, a very still still used, still uttered uh, in support of the 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 sovereignist cause, um, 
And uh, around that time, you know, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who would become the prime minister, came to visit on our national holiday, the Saint-Jean-Baptiste, and was pelted with all sorts of household, uh, like foodstuffs. And there was, there was a, a massive riot the day of the truncheon, le jour de la matraque. Why was he pelted? Ah, uh, because he was felt to be a, a traitor to the 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 French nationalist cause. The, the sorry, the Quebecois nationalist cause. And the do you have any idea why Charles de Gaulle uh, made this pronouncement? I don't know. It, it was super based, but I don't think it. I don't think it. <laughs> it doesn't seem to connect to anything. Just de Gaulle being de Gaulle. <laughs> I, I think at a, at a, once you get to a certain level of of, of just uh, fame and honor, you get to say whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, and it sounds like I mean he was just expressing. Uh, French pride by proxy, by by citing the French identity. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this was a French uh, policy. Right. Yeah, that was uh, more De Gaulle being De Gaulle and not being particularly known for being humble, diplomatic, and a searcher of compromise. I mean, he, he's not going to bend backwards to avoid hurting people's feelings or stuff. <laughs> and one of the responses, I think, from uh, Canadian officials was, was to say, uh, at least in a way to explain why that was inappropriate, uh, was to say that, you know, Quebec doesn't need liberation. It's not unfree, right? Exactly. Yeah. So then what? So you have, uh, through all of this, there's all kinds of cultural developments, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip on. But basically, the, um, the, the key players of the Quebec independence movements at that time, they're all progressives, and a Marxist-Leninist fringe of the sovereignist movement splintered into the Quebec Liberation Front, the Front de Libération du Québec, the FLQ. Throughout the, the 60s, the FLQ is performing small-scale terrorist attacks, uh, bombing buildings, burning buildings, a couple deads here and there. And every couple of years, uh, the entire group is arrested, but then it uh, reborn through new new people, not necessarily connected to the first, and the cycle begins again. Yeah, and they were active... Uh, throughout the sixties, primarily, right? Yes. Yeah, and this is this is going to be a topic that is best left explored elsewhere. But I, I always remain fascinated by how many um, outright violent groups were active during this period. Uh, you have the Bademeinhof gang in Germany. Uh, you have the Black Panthers. You have uh, well, they weren't as violent as other groups. Uh, you have uh, the Weather Underground in the United States. Um, and you have groups like, you know, Puerto Rican liberation uh, groups that had a shooting in the capital, uh, but that was like more towards the late 50s. Uh, it was, I guess, much more a la mode to engage in a group like that. Right. And the FLQ def- is definitely part of this trend. Like they definitely yes. consider themselves uh, internationalist Marxists. Um, they, they, they link up with the Black Panthers in 66. Uh, some of the FLQ uh, members uh, escape captures uh, after a, a terrorist attack. Uh, uh, terrorist attack by a uh, fling to New York to, and they link up with the Black Panthers. Uh, and, uh, while, uh, while over there, they, 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 they uh, get arrested and, uh, from prison, they write, uh, a book called Les Negres Blancs d'Amérique, a book whose title I cannot translate for you without getting into trouble. <laughs> the White Negroes of America. Yeah. The, the way it's published in America, it's the title is The White Negroes of America. Uh, but Negre in French means Negro. Yeah, so maybe it was intended to have a more prov- provocative uh, title. Uh, we don't distinguish between uh, Negro and Nigger in French. So I, I believe in this case, it was very much meant to be understood as the white niggers of America in the, in the slur way. 
so uh, what what was exactly what was the FLQ aiming for? So they uh, they had several acts. I think the most prominent one was bombing the well. We'll get to that. Uh, but they bombed the Montreal uh, Stock Exchange, uh, injuring 27 people. The the Montreal Stock Exchange bombing, bombing. There there are some uh, conspiracy theories that it was actually perpetrated by the RCMP. I'm not sure how much stock I put in that. I think it it may have been the the FLQ. And the R- RCMP is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Mounted Police, right? Yeah. Yeah. The the orange guys with the with the big hats. But what what was the what was the FLQ aiming for? I mean, they were using violence to achieve their end, but what, what exactly was their end? Right, so their, their stated end is uh, basically uh, a popular revolution against the elites of, of Quebec, uh, who is uh, keeping the French down. So in his manifesto, Les Negres Blancs d'Amérique, uh, Pierre Laporte uh, draws uh, parallels between the, the black man's struggle in the US and uh, the, the, the French-Canadian struggle in, in Canada. And uh, just basically describes that that racism is a distraction from uh this the seeing who the the true uh oppressor is uh the which is the economic elites uh, regard nominally anglo-saxon but really regardless of uh color so it was it was trying to make a marxist point about oppression uh yes. but adopting the language of uh, racial oppression i i didn't read the book but i mean the first page or so the arguments just strikes me as facile uh in terms of it's trying really hard to adopt the much worse position of a a racial group uh as a way to explain like why they're deprived so so this 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 game of of playing on associations to 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 you know make one group seem uh like a victim and the other like an aggressor i think that's you know that that is universal in 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 uh political uh kind of ideology writing in it is, but writing. but when I say it's facile, I, it just strikes me as a as a a, a poor comparison. Uh, it's trying to adopt something that is, I guess, like has much stronger documentation of uh, oppression, meaning the the black experience within the United States, and trying to say, oh, we're almost just like that. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean that's my the... impression. But if you want to, if you think it has more support, I. I'm no, I don't happy think so. to hear that. Okay. Uh, I, I, I don't have an opinion either way. I did not read it either. Uh, but this book was very popular within Quebec. Yes, 100,000 copies sold in a country of, uh, sorry, in a province of 6 million people. <laughs> you can so, say country uh, if you want to. I'm not going <laughs> to censor you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say the um, much shorter um, FLQ manifesto, the 10-page version you linked, it's very that, good. That's very, very strong. I'd say I right now I'm willing to endorse every word of that manifesto up to including the homophobic slurs. <laughs> There's a one thing in there I disagree with, and it's characterization of um, Robert Barassa and Pierre Trudeau. I, I fully endorse that. Those insults are worth it. Uh, what are some excerpts of the manifesto? Uh, you want me to quote the slurs? Okay. No, not the slurs, but something that stands out. And what we're talking about is the FLQ manifesto from 1970, right? Yes. Yes. So the big thing is the socialists do this all the time. They, they actually have the correct economic analysis of who's screwing who, how it's just, they come at it via labor theory of value that doesn't work. But if you look at like, um, like if you applied libertarian economics or anything along the, those lines, like basic econ 101, 
100% the monopolies they point to that are being used to kind of extract value value from the Quebecois population, like right down to to the taxi companies. One specific taxi company had was given a monopoly on being able to drive high value passengers from the airport to downtown. Like only one taxi company could do that in a city with a hundred taxi companies. Yeah. That's state violence being applied to extract value from the population. And there's a, and I, I didn't realize this was the story behind the Murray Hill, right? But yeah, that was a hundred percent worth it. Trying to go to that taxi company. As soon as the cops went on strike, um, they, the other taxi companies, launched a riot uh, the Quebec the Montreal police went on strike over other things and within like four or six hours all the taxi companies in Toronto descended in sorry Montreal descended on Murray Hill and tried to burn that taxi company with monopoly to the ground and apparently um, the owner of the taxi company he and his employees fought back with shotguns and like murdered an undercover police officer in the process like just utter madness and it's like no that's actually economic exploitation that's actually using the power of this the what that taxi company was doing what the broader quebec quebec economy was doing was creating these these monopolies for politically favored groups to exploit the populace everything about that is ac- accurate and that's exactly how the canadian economy still works to this day every every single industry in canada remains a cartel run run by like like a few politically connected families um in ontario every single like big chain grocery store is owned by by the loblaws conglomerate which is pretty much privately owned by the thompson family with a few separate shareholders but they're and and what you were referring to is uh, is known as Montreal's night of terror which was like a a police strike uh in 1969 yes ex- Yes. Uh, but that's how Canada's economy still works. It's cartels in pretty much every ind- major industry that either rig prices or exclude competition. Right, right. It, it's uh, it's potentially like a universal grievance, uh, but it's filtered through the lens of Marxist uh, uh, political thinking, at least when it's uh, published by the FLQ, right? Uh, yes, but the conclusion that they need to overthrow their elites establish an independent Quebecois nation and have a revolution. Like I endorse all of that 100% and I endorse calling Robert Barassa a twink. (laughs) (laughs) Can I read from the manifesto? Yeah, 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 fine. We briefly believed that it was worth channeling our energy and our impatience, as René Lévesque so aptly put it, into the Parti Québécois, but the liberal victory clearly demonstrates that what we call democracy in Québec has always been, and still is, a democracy of the rich. In this sense, the Liberal Party's victory is a victory of the Simard Cotroni, so a rich family, election riggers. Consequently, we have washed our hands clean of the British parliamentary system and the Front de Libération du Québec will never allow itself to be distracted by the electoral crumbs that the Anglo-Saxon capitalists toss Quebec's way every four years. Many Quebecers have realized the truth and are ready to take action. In the coming year, Bourassa will get what is coming to him, a 100,000 revolutionary workers armed and organized. Yes, there are reasons for the liberal victory. Yes, there are reasons for poverty, unemployment, slums, and for the fact that you, Mr. Bergeron of Visitation Street, and also you, Mr. Legendre of Laval, who earn $10,000 a year, do not feel free in our country of Quebec. 
Yes, there are reasons, and the guys at Lord know them, and the fishermen of Gaspé, the workers of the North Shore, the miners of the Iron War, of Quebec Cartier Mining and Noranda also know these reasons. And the brave workers of Cabano, who you tried to screw again, know many such reasons. And so it goes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this was uh, this was published in 1970, and uh, it's fair to say that it was it was. Uh, FLQ was uh, quite active within this uh, very short period of time. I, I, th- I think the story of the publishing is itself very interesting. Uh, it starts with a cell of the FLQ uh, kidnapping a British diplomat called Andrew Cross. And in exchange for sparing his life, they demand that uh, Radio Canada read the, their manifesto on air. And also demand the same of the four largest uh, newspapers that be printed on the front co- on the front page. And so they they, they really they, they have the Marxist take that you know the people know better you know like so, stop trying to pull the the wool over their eyes with your wonkery. Uh, they demand that the people uh, rise up in re- re- revolt. So it's happening. Um, <laughs> the, the the October crisis, as yes. we say online, it's happening. Uh, the, the media further accelerates the happening with with its breathless coverage. So throughout the crisis, you have FLQ members calling radio stations. Let's set the scene. Uh, what is the October crisis? The October crisis is well, it's basically what I'm describing. Uh, two guys, uh, two 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 higher government uh, guys, one uh, British diplomat and one Quebec minister, are abducted, and the re- the response of the federal government will shock you. Yeah, so that's James Cross, uh, the British diplomat, and the uh, Labour minister Pierre Laporte. Uh, they were exactly. kidnapped by the FLQ, and then what happened? And so uh, the, the 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 they're kidnapping. Okay, so the, you have you know the Quebec population who are uh, somewhat sympathetic to the FLQ's. Uh, um, demands, but not necessarily to their methods. And uh, so uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the um, Prime Minister of Canada, steps in. And I, Pierre Elliott Trudeau is a very interesting character, and I think he's he's probably the second main character of our story here. And you should know that he's uh, Justin Trudeau's dad. Yeah, the dad of our current Prime Minister. So 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 let, let's let's introduce him briefly. So he is another Quebecois, another progressive, but also a hardcore federalist, meaning someone who wants Quebec to remain within Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played a major role in keeping Quebec within Canada. René Lévesque called him the grave digger of Quebec's ambitions. Uh, to this day, my own grandfather wants to dig up his grave just to beat the shit out of him. <laughs> why Why did he earn so much ire? You have the, this situation where uh, you know there, there's this potential insurrection going on uh, to, uh, you know, b- broadcasts calling people to revolt, two higher government officials kidnapped. And so uh, Pierre-Elliott Trudeau uh, when asked how far he would go to restore order, quips, "Just watch me." Yeah, and this is this was a famous uh, interaction with uh, a CBC journalist. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is, uh, go on and bleed. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of uh, of a at, at any helmet. cost. At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. And so he declared a state of apprehended insurrection under the War Measures Act of Canada and uh, deployed the Canadian military in Montreal to, to keep order. And so they put a, a curfew in place. And under, under the Canadian War Measures Act, uh, the military is allowed to detain and search the homes of anyone they deem may be linked with the insurrection. In practice, that turns out to be anyone uh, protesting against the repression of Quebec citizens by Canadian soldiers. So the the kidnapping of Laporte and, and Cross that they gave kind of like the excuse for the government to start getting heavy handed. Uh, exactly. Was was the response 
from the government. I, I mean, I understand that there was pushback from Quebec, uh, but did it enjoy? Well, in, in, in fact, they enjoyed the consent of the local authorities. Uh, so the, the the population didn't react; uh, they weren't weren't happy about it. But uh, the mayor of Montreal and the 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 prime minister of Quebec uh, were certainly very happy uh, that uh, the Canada was willing to act. Um, and but the, but there was also um, maybe it's time to mention that one of the people that got kidnapped was killed. Yes, uh, Pierre Laporte was found. Uh, I think the day after the invocation of the War Measures Act, dead in a car trunk. A fate with two this to this day we like to threaten politicians with. <laughs> yeah, he was he was strangled to death and then just ditched on the side of the road, right? Uh, yep. And uh, they were the perpetrators were immediately found and arrested. The crisis resolved, but uh, uh, also Quebec Quebecois did not forget, and uh, this gave a massive boost to the submarinist cause. But but when you say gave a massive boost, like what form did that take? I think people uh, were very um, concerned about the image of Canadian troops marching through uh, Quebec to, to, to basically prevent uh, Quebecois self-determination. Okay. I mean, the French Language Acts of Canada, that, that was passed in 1969, uh, where it formally recognized French and English as the official languages of the country. Uh, that must have stemmed somewhat from Quebec and their uh, and the independence movement, right? See, I'm not quite clear on why, but I don't. The independentists weren't very happy with this for some reason. <laughs> Maybe because okay. it, it it cemented their position within Canada. This this whole compromise showed that the the Anglo's were willing to play ball. Yeah. So after the October crisis, what I mean, what does the independence movement look like in Quebec? Six years later. Uh, René Lévesque uh, gets into power as, with the Parti Québécois. This is the uh, World War II journalist that became kind of a, a big front person. He was a, he was probably like the most prominent uh, elected politician that represented the movement. Exactly, exactly. He he uh, helped create the uh, Parti Québécois. Uh, but basically, uh, so when, while in power, he uh, passed bill to drastically reduce the influence of money in politics, uh, which which was a uh, pretty big priority in the in a world where his his electorate are uh st- constitutionally poorer than uh the anglos um he uh passed bills to to enshrine uh, french as bills as uh, quebec's primary language including the famous bill 101 and he did a referendum on independence in 1980 which lost by a 20 percentage point margin <laughs> there was another referendum in 1995 right Yes, and that one failed by a half percentage point margin. Ooh. <laughs> and um, uh, the premier of Quebec at the t- at the time, um, Jacques Parizeau, it, to the 1995 Quebec referendum, famously said said at his concession session speech, "Who's really won this vote? Money and the ethnic vote." which was scandalous at the time, like had to resign because of it, that he blamed the loss on uh, money and the ethnic vote, which was all taken as code for, for Jews and various other, other groups. The thing though, with Perizzo's statement was it was actually true. If you look at the demographics of the vote, the majority of, um, of ethnic um, Quebecois, like pure, pure lane French, the, settlers that can date that came to Quebec from be- before um before the English conquest 
they all voted in huge numbers to to leave. Like if it was just a vote of the um, the Quebecois nation, as the Canadian federal government refers to them, um, the Quebec would have independence. It was it was um, largely dri- driven by people who were working in Quebec because that's where their jobs were, or um, or immigrants t- to Quebec. So in a, in a curious way, if the FLQ had kept it up and there had been less money in Quebec because there was an ongoing North Ireland-style troubles and less of an ethnic vote because no one's going to immigrate to a place that has North Ireland-style troubles, independence would have won. So, But when you say ethnic uh, uh, divide, you're, you're talking about basically like the English-French divide. Uh, yes, but the, the big thing is... Um, the Anglo-Quebecers, so the um, the Anglos who lived in Quebec, their population had been declining from the 70s forwards. Um, Mordecai Reichler and um, Quebec Anglos actually um, um, have an entire grievance politics of their own around it. Um, Reichler referred to it as soft ethnic cleansing of the um, former wealthy Anglo-Quebecers, which, to be honest, the isn't inaccurate. They were forbidden to use their own language in business. Um, all signage wait, 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 in Quebec. Wait, wait. They, they were forbidden from uh, transacting in English to, uh, w- if, if someone uh, who was a party to the transaction wanted uh, to, to speak French. <laughs> uh, maybe it's, uh, we should we should briefly mention we should mention like uh, Quebec's uh, kind of like zeal towards uh, the French language. Yeah, no monolinguistic Anglo can run a business in Quebec. You can't run a storefront if you can only speak English. Well, you you can if your employees speak French. So no single person b- shop can be run by a, someone who's monolinguistic. B- if you basically if, if you're you an Anglo public, and you want to run a hot dog stand, that's just you and your stand. You can't do it because you only speak English. Basically, you have to be able to deal with the public in French. That's that's a, that's a basic requirement of of uh, doing business in uh, in Fran- in uh, Quebec. This language requirement is. Uh... Strongly enforced? Yes, 100%. And in fact, we have a little... Uh, it gets derisively called the language police, but we basically have an arm of the provincial government that makes sure that, that, makes sure that this is uh, observed. Yeah, so um, I think you posted a poem from 1968 uh, called Speak White. Yes. Uh, can you say more about that? So uh, the, the, the idea being that for uh, most of Quebec's history... Uh, if you were to, if you wanted to find work, uh, you had to be able to do it in English. If you wanted to shop in the in the city, you had to be able to to transact in English. The publication of of, of Speak White was a cultural milestone in in that uh, just see uh, bring into common uh, popular uh, culture the, the, this conception that we had been discriminated against on the basis of our language. Okay, so but Speak White is referring to what the English would say to correct someone speaking French, right? Exactly. Okay. Uh, famously, to a uh, French speaking uh, member of Parliament uh, in uh, in Ottawa. Oh, this was something that was actually said. Uh, it was actually said many times, but in particular that one time in Parliament, uh, like it, that that one's in the history books. Uh, yeah. So going off of the the comment uh, from the 1995 referendum about the ethnic vote, um, to what extent is uh, the Quebecois uh, movement for identity uh, more like I guess like a, a pretext for ethnic identity? It's 100% about ethnic identity, right? And but ethnic in a sense where. 
you know, if you're like we have uh, Moroccans and Lebanese and and French who are more Quebecois than I am because they integrate and they assimilate, and so it's not, you know, and they they, they have kids with the locals. You know, it's mm-hmm. this this isn't about blood. So, what does assimilation look like for a Quebecois that isn't, you know, a descendant of the original Cadians? <laughs> you come here and you uh, speak French. <laughs> you speak French, and uh, you read some French books, and you send your kids to French uh, school, and everyone's happy. <laughs> yeah, but you have to speak unaccented French. Um, I've heard stories of French people from Paris who only speak French show up in Quebec and um, go into a shop, say some something in French, the Quebecois switch over to English, which the Parisian does not speak because they have the <laughs> wrong accent. <laughs> so the Quebec so like, if Quebec you're are Anglo, more haughty than the French? Yeah, so if a Parisian who only speaks French has too much of an accent, the if you're, say... Anglo and want to learn French, or if you're an immigrant from somewhere else that doesn't speak French or- originally, you're just kind of screwed. Like, no matter what, you're going to be thought of as someone who doesn't speak French because even Parisians with their <laughs> with just a Parisian accent are thought of as English first. What I've heard is that the like France, French from France, sort of is the or was the prestige dialect of Quebec. In that some people could speak it, it was considered like the proper way to speak, though most people would speak in the more dialectical local version. You know what's funny is that uh, the the French France um, has kind of lost its its status as this like international French. Uh, these, these these days, you would say the the Français Radio Canadien, and so the the CBC French. And uh, they stopped uh, getting. Uh, they stopped dubbing movies in France because they would use all sorts of French slang. Meanwhile, if you if you dub it in Quebec, you can sell it in Morocco and Egypt and uh, elsewhere. Wait, the, the Quebec dub French movies? Yes. No, 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 no. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Quebec dub American movies, but because before they they had uh, people in France dub the American movies and uh, they they would inject all sorts of crazy uh, slang. Oh, so the Quebec are more French than the French. Okay, well, we're bad, we're better at communing with the international French community, or, or so, uh, or so is my understanding. There will often be two versions, two French versions of an American movie: the French version and the Quebecois version, which will have a different title. Often in France, they are much more likely to actually keep the American title, but in no, Quebec- they don't keep the American title. They put a different English title. So, like, right. yes, they do that which, too. <laughs> which which movie like became like I think so like. Okay, I'm going to say something stupid. It's not that, but it's something like The Hangover became like Sex Party. <laughs> Whereas in Quebec, it would be La Hangover. No, 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 no. No, it would be like the word-to-word translation. L'Anmain Veille. In English, it's The Hangover. In, in French, it's called Very Bad Trip. Very bad. <laughs> or Man Veille in Quebec, which is a much more literal translation. <laughs> <laughs> the film title thing is for me an, a great microcosm of the very different feelings about the French language because in France we don't really care about American sounding movies whereas in Quebec it's a huge deal and everything has to be translated and that's kind yeah. of like cultural shock for us to seeing that because actually we feel the Quebecois 
they feel pretty American to us. I feel they feel like French speaking Americans, <laughs> but culturally, they're pretty similar to, to Americans. Yep. <laughs> Americans think we're Europeans. Europeans think we're Americans. Which one is more offensive to you? Uh, neither. Like, <laughs> come, come visit. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, it's a very nice place. Yes, I, I quite like uh, Quebec. And all the French people I know who moved there, well, most of them really loved it and would, wouldn't dream of going back to France, except for this one guy who re really hated the winter. Hmm. Yeah, the winter, like you, you have to develop your tolerance. It's, it doesn't happen uh, overnight. It's a great place to be a tourist, not, not a great place to start a lemonade stand. You know what? I'm of the opposite impression. Uh, if you're an American tourist in, in Montreal, you're going to miss on all of it. You need to move here, learn French, and then then you can participate to the the French community with all the hot girls and the cool parties and the and the real estate that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Yep, that's the big point for us French. Uh, you were saying Kulak. Uh, so the the present pretty much um, after the '95 referendum there has been very little progress towards in independence. It's pretty much a lost cause at this point. Um, increased demographic shift has kind of moved away from that, but also just the increased financial dependence of Quebec on the rest of Canada. This is a huge, huge issue that's at the, that will probably tear Canada apart at, possibly in the next few decades. But um, one of the big things that's been going on to kind of buy off Quebec loyalty has been massive transfers of money into the province of Quebec and lots of shifts of, of Canadian federal jobs. So something like something close to to 200 billion in equalization payments have been paid out, out to Quebec, whereas uh, there are Anglo provinces that have never received a single equalization. 200 payment. billions is overstating it because the, the record year was 14 billion. Yeah, over time, like 200 billion over time. So divide that by the population of Quebec, that's that's several thousand dollars per Quebecer. And if you actually look at which provinces have been net payers versus um, net contributors, Alberta, for example, has never received an equalization payment, but they, they pay into it. So it's been pretty close to like something, something like a lifetime, several thousand dollars of gone out of Alberta per person and into Quebec. I saw one figure at one point that put it around $10,000 per Albertan. This has been a huge cultural and economic divide in Canada, especially because the reason Alberta is, is able to pay so much more into it is because Alberta has the oil sands and the oil, oil industry is a great money generator within Canada, kind of the thing that's keeping Canada going which Quebec and especially left-wing politicians elected from Quebec have been keen to try to shut down on um, environmental grounds. So there's this huge cultural battle currently that has been going on my entire lifetime between Western Canada and Eastern Canada, and more specifically Quebec, over, over pipelines, the oil sands, equalization, all of that. And just to explain, equalization payment is a, is a policy by the Canadian federal government that tries to equalize financial contribution across the provinces, right? I guess like put, put the provinces on a more equal level. But that means that the Western provinces, uh, British Columbia, Alberta, um, Maritoba, right? Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan yeah, the one, and Alberta. They, they barely get anything, but the Eastern provinces, specifically Quebec, gets a shit ton. Yes, exactly. And... Um, so these 
economic resentments, especially um, there's a class resentment to it too. So Alberta is driven by these blue collar industries, which are actually very rich. Like um, for a while from like 2008 to 2015, you could with just a high school diploma or possibly less go to Alberta and work in the oil sands easily. It was very easy to get a job there, but very hard work, like minus 40 degrees doing doing hard labor and shifts, but you'd make over $100,000 a year within a year or two. And this was a huge boon to English Canada and that all dried up in 2015, but because the oil market shifted. But one of the big things is Canada hasn't had a pipeline in that time. So, and so cool. Like, how does this make you feel? Because it, it, it seems like, uh, the, the spirit of independence is, uh, pay, being paid off. Well, the, like, my thing is I want the nation of Canada to rip itself apart. Like, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like my, th- my great lament is that the FLQ didn't keep going for another 20 years. Have yes, everyone yes, yes. scared get it. We get for their it. life yeah. that, and vote for independence. <laughs> and then Quebec would be its own thing. It's own beautiful, unique nation with question. its own beautiful, unique culture. You're just, uh, you're, uh, you're harboring to uh, a lost uh, uh, future that never came to be. I'm talking about well, the Well, now there's the Wexit movement in East, in Western Canada that wants to separate from the rest of, of Canada. And yeah, you're still I, not answering the question. <laughs> what would... So I would like Wexit to happen. I'd like the Alberta independence movement to, to <laughs> separate. I'd like the Quebec independence movement to separate. I, I feel very resentful towards... Trudeau and I want to pull out that <laughs> quote from quote from the FLQ manifesto calling accusing him of homosexuality and nail it to the the doors of parliament. Um, okay. Um, we've seen so I'll, I'll just ask you, Obsidian. Uh, there does seem to be a significant disparity in the equalization payouts, uh, where yes. Quebec is a is a big be- beneficiary. Uh, how does that how does that make you feel? Or I don't know if you've been explicit about your support for uh, Quebec independence or not. So like most people in my generation, I would like for us to be separated, but I would not like for us to go through the process of separation. <laughs> you want <laughs> to break up with her, but you don't want the grieving. Saga. It's not It's not the grieving. It's the fucking, like, like, like you know, we, we should expect Canada to make an example out of us in terms of like trading relation, trading partnerships in terms of like, you know, like all sorts of unrest, you know, don't change a winning horse. Let, let, let's, let's say that. And, but, uh, yeah, if, uh, you know, if, if this breaks apart and, uh, we're on, we're doing our own thing, then, uh, all the better. Uh, I'm gonna ask that, uh, uh, Siv, could you, could you please ask, uh, your French people if like Paris could be expelled from, uh, from the rest of France, I think. Uh, oh, I'm, it would, uh, I'm sure most of the well. French would agree with that. Let, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Quebec independence to the the Paris uh, connection. We didn't even get to the trucker convoys and the the boiling over of conservative grievances. That has nothing to do with Quebec. You should like make it. <gasps> well, make the it former a premier <laughs> of of Quebec was parachuted into the conservative leadership contest to act as a a spoiler and he could just win because the conservative party's contest is that messed up that John Chere might become the leader of the conservative party in which case 
in which case almost every so member you're saying of there's the a conspiracy Al- against po- Pierre Poliev, right? <laughs> what? Kulak, you sat through two hours of recording just so you can talk about the Canadian truckers. Just admit it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, vive, vive le Québec libre. Vive le Québec libre. <laughs> Save, do you want to say vive la France? Vive le Québec libre. Vive hey! la France. <laughs> 1837 will commence again. <laughs>